Today is Sunday, November 27th, 2016, and this is episode 178 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Callett. Hey, Jerry. How are you? How was your Thanksgiving, sir? It was uh, it was very good. Spend it with family. How about you? Good, good. Yeah, we... Uh... We actually had a Thanksgiving brunch and had some friends over, so that was nice. And uh, it was a nice break from work, at least here in the U.S. Uh, you know, I, I worked Friday, but kind of, kind of half time. I'll put it that way. So it's been a nice little break. Indeed, indeed. Um, so uh, before we get started, the uh, just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of those of our employers. So uh, we have a. Full, uh, full house of stories to uh, to talk about tonight. And the first one comes from the Checkpoint blog, and the title is ImageGate. Oh, no, it's a named vulnerability. Uh, ImageGate Checkpoint uncovers a new method for distributing malware through images. It is named, but it doesn't yet have a logo or a theme song or a mascot. So I think we're okay. Or, or, a, or a celebrity spokesperson. That's true. Uh, I'm Henry Winkler, <laughs> here to talk with you about ImageGate. Love it. Love it. So uh, so anyway, uh, there was a some hoopla last, last week about a new Lockheed flare-up that was apparently being distributed by, uh, by social media, specifically Facebook. And uh, apparently Checkpoint believes that, and I don't think this is actually confirmed, but they believe they've uncovered the method of distribution as being related to images. So so basically modified, specially handcrafted artisanal malware-laden JPEGs, in fact, uh, that are uploaded to Facebook, which then get downloaded and uh, opened by the, uh, the unsuspecting uh, victims, as it were. And, uh, and suddenly they are, they are Lockheed. Uh, now, up to now, Checkpoint is not saying, you know, if if in fact that is what's going on, or in fact uh, how they're how the thing they found actually works, uh, because it's it's a little odd. I I had always thought that uh, most websites typically munge the, well, not most, right? But I I believed that a lot of the uh, the social media sites munge the image when you upload it. They, it's not like the actual raw image that you download, but I guess maybe that's, in fact, what's going on here. Well, this is a weird one, and I, I, I'm hesitant to say anything definitive because we know so little about it, and perhaps I'm just being dumb tonight, but I looked at the video they put out of the demo, and the way I watched the demo, so this is on Checkpoint's blog, it's a YouTube link right after blog, Basically, guy, you know, bad guy opens up Messenger, sends a, a an image to victim. Victim clicks on it. Their browser says, where would you like to save this file? They save the file. Then they go and they double click on the saved file and execute it. Right. I'm not sure why this is any different than sending somebody an executable that they double click on. Or I'm missing what's novel here about this point i'm 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 sort of maybe it's me but i'm not seeing what's so 
interesting yet about getting somebody to download something and click on it. Well, I think that I I, th I think the novelty is that JPEGs have historically been thought of as benign or or less much less risky than an than a an executable. Well, in their demo, the the image extension was HTA. It wasn't even a JPEG. Yeah. Well, there's like you said, there's a lot of stuff we don't understand. I, so I kind of wonder maybe maybe the um, maybe the vulnerability they found is that you can masquerade a, a non-JPEG to look like a JPEG when, I don't you, know. when you're transferring it through uh, through Facebook. I, it's a little unclear. It's weird. E even when they double click on the demo, it opens up like in a note a notepad. It it doesn't even execute like as an image. So I I don't know. I well, that was I think that was actually the uh, the, the the payload that was being encrypted. So if, if, if memory know. serves, but anyway, point is, you know, people shouldn't be shouldn't be browsing Facebook on their damn well work computer. Yeah, but they're gonna. So we've got to come up with a better solution, right? Look, it's again, it's about defending the endpoint against hostile code. Regardless of how that code comes in, uh, if Facebook's allowed in your environment, and you got challenges, you got that's you've uh, got to find a way to deal with that. And oh, you you definitely have challenges. I'll, this, I'll, I'll agree with you there. <laughs> this one's a tough one because I don't know enough about the vulnerability to really have much commentary. And and it's weird because Checkpoint sort of pre-announced this with just enough to get them some marketing buzz without divulging any information because they're waiting for the social networks to fix this problem, whatever the hell the problem is. It's this weird middle ground of pseudo-responsible disclosure. I don't know. If maybe it's, you know, if maybe it's related, maybe not related. Do we even know if it's real? Uh, well, they, they claim that the thing they found is real. Well, of course but they what, claim what, What's not clear is whether what they found is Related to the the Locky flare-up that has been observed. Well, you know, it just feels very clickbaity right now. I don't I don't have enough information to decide this is a, a security vendor being clickbaity. I know that's crazy. And in full disclosure, I, I used to work for Checkpoint. Why, why would they ever do that? <laughs> I, I, anyway, I need, to, I need to bite my tongue before I start getting nasty emails. Watch, watch this space here. They do say they do say that you should um, try to view the image. Their recommendations, by the way, were to view the image in your browser, and not try to download it and then open it, and then also don't don't open any image files with an unusual extension such as an SVG, JS, or HTA. So, yes. Yeah. Anyway. Watch yay, this checkpoint. space. Uh, yeah, yay, checkpoint. And I still say don't allow Facebook at work. Yeah. You just hate the millennials. Wow. Sticking it to the millennials, yep. Well, let's, let's you know, they're also saying that uh, LinkedIn could be an attack vector, but, you know, they don't mention Twitter. And as far as I know, you live on Twitter, mister. But not on my work computer. Mm-hmm. 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 No, I don't do Twitter. I don't do Facebook. I don't do any social media on my work computer, and neither should anybody else. Except, I guess, if you're in marketing, then I guess you have to. Right? It's a very strong stance. How else am I going to waste time at work? Come on. I don't know. I don't have solitaire to play anymore. They took that away. 
That see that kills me. They took solitaire away, but you can still <laughs> solitaire. The thing that will not get your computer compromised is no. Well, challenge, you can't challenge use. accepted. <laughs> well, without with without extenuating circumstances, <laughs> but they do allow Facebook. How crazy is that? Anyway, moving on. I'm gonna my head's gonna explode. The next story comes from CSO online, and the title is "Should we." Shall we care about zero days? The answer is kinda. Next, <laughs> it's a, it's a, it's an interesting point. Although it has odd, sort of <laughs> non-contiguous recommendations later. Yeah, it does. So they they point out that Gartner is saying that through the year 2020, they expect that 99% of exploited vulnerabilities will be uh, be once that were known for at least a year. And so point point is that as defenders we often get tied up thinking about you know how do we how do we protect against the zero day when in fact it's the you know it's the old vulnerabilities that are right. are, are biting us in the butt which by the way does match up with what we've seen out of the Verizon data breach report so that that yeah you know, is, is reasonable. That passes the smell test that we should care more about known vulnerabilities than zero days. Yeah. But you know, yeah. So I, I didn't, I don't, I think the Gartner report probably is, um, is, is proprietary, but at least the data is, but I'm going to guess that the Verizon Verizon report probably weighed pretty heavily on their assessment. Mm-hmm. So <laughs> maybe some somewhat of a cyclical, well, it also depends on how much money Verizon spends with Gardner. Well, that's oh, true. Wait, did I say that out loud? Ouch. We can edit. We can edit that out. Yeah, right? we'll edit that out. Sure. Yeah. 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 yeah They'll never make not, it. In. People aren't supposed to know that until you hit like thirty-fifth level of Freemasonry. <laughs> They'll never hear it. I'll take it out. Infosec Freemasonry, Cybermasonry. That's it. Thirty-fifth level Cybermason. Uh huh. So um, so yeah. That anyhow. Point is. We need to get better about, we need to focus on the things that we know about and a little less on the, the things that we don't know about. I I, I definitely think that, um, you know, the the flash in the pan ones, the shell shocks, heart bleeds, those, you know, it's, I guess they weren't really zero days when they, when they, they hit, because in most cases there was a patch really, really quickly, but, you know, they, they can be pretty pretty severe and so I, I i think we ignore the the zero day concern at our own peril but i i still go back to the the point that you know the the need here is for resilient systems and resilient sure. designs and and less about you know really reactionary things that are or, or solutions that that require us to you know take some step in response to a you know new zero day so, I agreed, uh, because I think a zero day can be similar in impact to other sort of unforeseen outages or issues that you know a well-designed system with appropriate budget capability could could respond to. But one yeah. thing that's interesting is they list five fundamental principles that could significantly reduce the impact of zero days for many companies. The first one is they minimize external attack surface. So, as you can imagine. Or as you can imagine, it's patch your perimeter, minimize the attack surface, don't have too many services open. However, the fifth one, <laughs> which is interesting, is 
according to PwC's Global State of Security 2017, phishing is the number one vector of cyber attack this year. <laughs> yep. So if phishing is your number one vector, why am I spending time on external attack service? Well, it, it, that, that is an interesting question because if, you know, if you're, it, is it definitional? Is your, is your fleet of workstations external threat surface? <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> but the way they sum it up in this article, no, they, they truly mean things on the edge with a, a public IP address that's publicly reachable by anonymous users on the internet. Yeah, yeah. and they, they, they point out that like you know, the, uh, the talk talk breach, which we covered a couple of months back, was uh, the result of a SQL injection, which you know if, if yeah. they would have had a WAF, maybe that would have helped. But probably not because they probably would have had, would not have had rules configured because no. that may uh, have I, interfered I, with their application. Right, that's true. Now, to be fair, I don't think you should ignore protecting your perimeter. I really don't. I think, but it's just funny how these two two pieces of advice are at odds with each other. Yeah. Um, yep. Uh, the the other three, just to wrap it out, implement defense in depth and security hardening. Oh, that's you know fairly straightforward. Properly manage access control and implement anomaly detection, continuous monitoring, and conduct regular information security awareness training. Because that's worked so well for the past twenty years. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting they don't they don't talk about in here is, um, and I, I know I'm going to get some email about this is um, inventory. I have come to believe strongly that. Proper asset management is foundational and fundamental to security. Yeah, and it, you know when when you look around, a lot of the a lot of the really serious breaches we've seen and talked about have been a result of you know a, a lab system that people forgot about, or um, you know a, a, an installation of WordPress on a on a server that became orphaned. You know that right. So so we can talk about. You know the the need to get better at applying you know, applying patches to known vulnerabilities, remediating remediating known vulnerabilities, but we have to know they're there. And I, you know I'm not convinced that a, that many organizations actually have have good insight into no I agree their uh, you know their fleet of assets. So as as well as being able to quickly assign ownership and and. Yeah, you know who who does care and feeding for that particular asset and right, right, and holding them accountable and yep, absolutely. Yeah. So anyway, interesting stuff. Uh, moving on to our next story, which comes from Data Breach Today, and the title is uh, "University of Massachusetts Amherst Hit with Six Hundred and Fifty Thousand Dollar HIPAA Settlement." So this was related to a breach that happened, I guess, back in two thousand thirteen. Uh, they the university here lost about 1,700 records. And what what was interesting about this is that uh, the the records were were lost off of a office PC uh, at, at you know inside the university that was part of a speech I guess it was a speech therapy department if if memory serves and at the time the university didn't consider the the speech therapy services as being part of their HIPAA program, and so it kind of fell outside. And anyway, the the, the workstation here got infected 
I assume through a phishing email <laughs> with a with a Trojan, you know, remote access Trojan, and they uh, the, the the university disclosed that fact. They couldn't prove one you know, whether the data had been accessed or not, but under the HIPAA rules, they felt compelled that you know this is a this is something they have to disclose, and uh, you know the, the potential access the, the potential ability for the the data to be accessed was there. They couldn't prove that it wasn't accessed, so um, it became a, a a fine for them. And um, it I, the thing that I wonder here is if it had been part of their HIPAA program, would that have actually changed anything? I mean, it's not, it, it's not really, there's no detail to say one way or the other, but I'm, I, I just, that, that, that part is a little unclear to me because there's, you know, it's not like uh, anything in the HIPAA spectrum of, of requirements that does anything that would particularly prevent your, your, your workstation from, from being infected with a rat. Yeah. I, you make a good point. And, and the way I sort of read this and, and made some assumptions around was that the, their existing HIPAA protections, had it been applied to this environment, may not have stopped it, but might have been able to identify and monitor better and known if something was leaked. And they would have a process and procedure around it. Uh, you know, so it's interesting. It's an interesting question whether or not, you know, they had designated this within their HIPAA concerns and had covered it with their HIPAA program because their HIPAA program in and of itself didn't seem to get dinged too badly in the report. I'm guessing the OCR felt that the HIPAA efforts for other parts of the organization would have been effective, at least in minimizing this, or, or maybe, you know, maybe that's just the way the law is written that, you know, it's easier to find for not, Covering something in HIPAA than should be, as opposed to trying to make a judgment call on whether or not your HIPAA protections are substantial enough to be effective. Yeah, and they said they also hadn't performed a thorough risk analysis as they're required to do until until after actually significantly after the breach. So that yeah. that's also part part of. Oh, sorry, dog barking. <laughs> <laughs> and now a word from our dog sponsor. Yes, and that's also part of the. Uh, uh, you know, the, the HIPAA requirements is to perform uh, periodic risk assessments. One other thing I thought was interesting is is that they got fined 650000 but there was a quote, uh, November 26th statement, the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Office for Civil Rights acknowledged that the UMass settlement amount reflects, quote, the fact that the university has been operating at a financial loss in 2015, end quote, implying that the financial payment, or, yeah, financial penalty could have been much higher had they been in better financial straits? Yeah, HIP is no joke. You know, that's um, I, I I think as as the new uh, the new mega rule becomes you know, kind of diffused out and the, the audit programs are are picking up. I I really think uh, there's going to be a lot of organizations that find themselves uh, kind of in in shock. So yeah. Uh, but what's interesting about that is is the OCR is at least being mindful of not finding someone out of existence. Yeah, yeah, but uh, even even so, I mean, six hundred fifty k against a you know a university that's losing money is mm-hmm. that's um that's that's really bad. Yeah. So anyway, um, 
if you're if the, I think the lesson there is is to really make sure you understand what regulations apply to the data you have because you know these yep. guys and and girls were surprised i mean they were apparently just ignorant that this you know, this this segment of data fell under the hipaa regulation and and operated in that way until it was breached so anyway and yeah, you know it, it, it goes back to once again to inventory as well as yeah. you know knowing your data absolutely and you know when once uh, once the the new european data protection regulation comes online that's it's going to add a whole new bunch of fun well and it's you know realistically it's getting harder and harder i think for organizations to keep all this in mind and you have to build more and more auditing and compliance people around all of this just to try to keep yourself out of trouble which is inevitably yeah. a drag on expenses and everything else in an organization. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I was I was being sort of silly over Twitter the other day of talking about. Uh, are you familiar with the concept of the Laffer curve? Which is yeah. Uh, some people disagree with it. That's fine, but it, it's really for the the sake of discussion. It's it's this concept of being able to find the sweet spot of taxation. Uh, to maximize revenue. In other words, too little taxation, you're not bringing enough money. Too much, too high of a level of taxation, people find uh, they react in such a way to minimize the amount of taxes they pay, and again, your your revenue drops. So finding the right amount on the bell curve of, of the right percent of taxation on whatever it may be to maximize revenue. So I was taking that concept and I was jokingly saying, I wonder if you could apply that sort of thought process to uh, compliance and audit. Right, finding the right level to <laughs> to actually drive better security, uh, but when you go too far, you've now tied up so many of your security people doing compliance and audit work that they're missing working on other emerging security threats. Yeah, and and I, I definitely yeah. think there's a value of diminishing returns when you over audit and you over, you know, even internally, not even talking regulation, not even talking external compliance. I'm just saying, you know. If you if you tie up your expensive security forces doing audit response and compliance work all day long, they're not able to work on other issues that may be outside the purview of that audit or compliance, but are more risky to the organization. And I think that there's a real unforeseen danger here, uh, especially in highly regulatory environments that have a lot of internal audit going on. I, I really think that they may be doing themselves a disservice by – distracting their people from working on actually improving security. Yeah. I, I, I think implicitly most organizations are, are, are trying to manage to that curve, whatever that curve really looks like. So, but I, I, I think you're, it just, it seems intuitive that there is something there. I guess the question is, is it, you know, is it consistent across organizations that you could, you could plot it out, but yeah, maybe it's something you could figure out for particular verticals. But right, it's a tough, it's a tough problem. I, I don't, I don't know that I have the answer on that. But it makes me think that we've got a finite amount of resources, and how we spend them matters. Yep. And if we're spending them on on audit and compliance all day long, and that's what we're built to answer, there's too much other stuff going on in security that require a more nimble approach the new threats. And I often feel like compliance and audits are fighting the last threat. 
Oh, they or have, have absolutely been, are. Yep. Yeah, they've been built to address the previous iteration of the threat. Now, the threat may still apply, but there's a good chance that the threat has evolved. Right. So it's, you know, I, I can't talk about my own work on the show because that's just not appropriate. But, you know, when I've seen other organizations, there's usually an emphasis on the threat as of a couple of years ago. Not necessarily a threat as it's today, and that's that, that's somewhat to be expected because it takes time for an organization to pivot, and and you know, it takes time for organizations to adapt. But if you codify that response in the way you measure metrics and the way you measure your security program, based on a view that doesn't evolve with a threat, I think you're missing the appropriate level of response for the current threat, and I think you're you're too over rotated on what the threat used to be. Well, I think it, it it points out that your your audit can't be it, that can't be the thing that is driving that governance and oversight. You need something right. that's more you know, more real time and attuned to the to the threat landscape to to drive those metrics uh, and keeping keeping them meaningful. Um, you know, with with what matters now, and you know, that's going to probably inevitably create some clashes with, um, you know, with internal audit programs. But honestly, that's where executives earn their pay. Right, finding the balance. Yeah, I mean, that's and that's it, why you have them, right? Hopefully, yeah. You know, it's a, it's an interesting challenge too, because typically the folks who truly have the level of knowledge of the current threats typically aren't in a position to influence that. They're usually middle or technical folks, middle leadership or technical folks in the IT organizations, or security organizations. Right. So it's complex. I, I know I'm digressing off on a tangent here, but it's something I've been noodling lately. Of, of you know, I've I've now been in a couple of highly regulated environments, and I see more regulations coming, especially for public companies. And I I, I worry we're consuming all of our security resources on. Looking at the for looking at the trees and not the forest. Yep, or <laughs> in a particular set of trees. Right. Yeah. So anyway, uh, let's move on to the next story, which comes from Ars Technica, and the title is "Elegant Zero Day Unicorn Underscores Zero uh, Serious Concerns About Linux Security." Um, I, I thought this was was pretty uh, pretty cool uh, in a strange sort of way. So the story here is some researchers came up with a uh, an exploit against the GStreamer framework, which is a, uh, a multimedia component that comes with Fedora and a few other uh, Linux distributions. And and I'll net it out this way, right? The for a long time, myself included, people have thought Linux is a you know is, is a pretty good way to minimize the threat from malware. And I think that in large measure, it still is, but it's not, and I think that this article points out this, the reality is that it's not because Linux is necessarily so much more well-designed from a security perspective, as much as it is people just haven't targeted it as much. And you know, they, they, they point out that from a Linux perspective, a lot of the you know a lot of the banging on the gates by the bad guys and by the researchers has been done from a the, the perspective of a server, 
And so from a server perspective, it's, you know, it's pretty good. But what they're pointing out here in, in this particular article is that there, there hasn't been nearly as much thought and focus on the workstation perspective. And so it really is a situation where using Linux as a, on your workstation is a security through obscurity type of, of construct rather than something that's maybe necessarily so much more intrinsically secure. Yeah, I, I would agree. Uh, it, it, again, it just comes down to market share. The bad guys are going to go after where they can get the best bang for the buck. So if Linux is still fairly rare on the endpoint as a workstation, it doesn't make a lot of sense for the bad guys to go hunting after problems there. Uh, the other thing is that really what they're talking about here and what, what we see a lot is not necessarily fundamentally Linux so much as bundled applications with Linux. Yeah, that's, that's right. very true. I mean, in this case, it is also going after, um, you know, uh, address space layout randomization, dead execution prevention, and finding a way to defeat that, but it's defeating it through a bundled application. So, which is something we see over and over again nowadays. Most of the time, we're, fo most folks don't seem to attack the OS itself. They're attacking an application on the OS. Right. Right. But, uh, you know, you know I, I, like... Like WordPress on a bunch of Linux servers is just highly, highly popped, you know? Yes, and even more so the plugins, yep. Right. A absolutely. Um, so, and I guess flat, <clears throat> Flash on Windows would be another kind of simile, right? right? So, um, yeah, I, I, I thought that that was something worth talking about because I do know a lot of, a lot of people and a lot of organizations uh, use Linux because of its, you know, what they view as its intrinsic ability to uh, resist malware infections. And I think that, you know, by the way, that largely still is intact, but it's, you know, I think it's just um, a matter of circumstance rather than something that's intrinsic. So Yeah, but I, I think you could say that about anything that doesn't have a huge amount of market share. You, we, we used to yeah. say that about Macs. Well, that's time. a great example. Yep, it's a great you example. Know? Uh, but same same fundamental challenge there. They just there wasn't the market share for the bad guys to go after, and now there is. Right. Uh, I mean, the other challenge with Linux is you also don't have the security infrastructure built around Linux as an endpoint, uh, like you do Windows or Mac as an endpoint. So you, you're limited in the tools you can use to help defend as well. Um, yep. So I don't know. It's it's I'm not I'm not saying it's good or bad or different. I'm saying that the 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 related infrastructure around it as an endpoint hasn't been built like it has for some of the other platforms. Yeah, and I I will tell you I I have worked in an environment that has a lot of Linux uh, deployments and the the typical security tools you know your endpoint DLPs and antiviruses and um, next generation antiviruses and application whitelisting all that stuff is is a very difficult to find because very, there's very few vendors that support it. And B, when you do find it, it's very brittle. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and I mean, very brittle and it's, it's really frustrating. So, um, so anyway, but you know, 2017, I believe is going to be the year of Linux on the desktop. So really, we, we do have to think about this. Yes. Is that so? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I'll uh, I'll make a note. We'll we'll check back. Okay. Mark my words. Well, it's it Linux is on the is on the handset, so why not? That, that's right. It's, it's uh, 
It's everywhere. It's on. It's on everybody's routers. It's. It's on. Uh-huh. You know, uh-huh. most of the world's smartphones. Yep. Uh-huh. So. Uh, so yeah. Uh, moving on to our next story. Um, yeah. Before I. Before I. You know. Talk about the the title here. Um, you remember. You remember the 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 major mega. Terrible, horrible, earth-ending denial of service that impacted Dine. I guess it was a couple. Yeah, of, that was. That, we said that was pretty much you know a harbinger of the end of the internet by nation states being able to take down massive amounts of centralized infrastructure. Absolutely. Uh, and you know, the, one of the tweets that took off was, uh, you know, uh, the internet was built to survive nuclear attack is taken down by light bulbs. Right. That's right. And, and we were thinking it was probably Russia messing with our elections. Right. Right. It was yeah, the the thinking at the time right. because it was like the week before the uh, the election here in the US and the thinking was that, you know, it was a it was a test run to take down the news sites or yeah. or, or some other nefarious purpose. And, you know, I I went to B Sides Atlanta and one of the one of the the talks that was given there was I, I forget the, the person's name was was describing how uh, his inside information was that it was, you know, a targeted attack against CNN, and and it was, uh, you know, it was was um, you know some something that had been brewing for a while, and mm-hmm. and on and on and on and on. So and as it turns out, as it turns out, um, securityweek.com disgruntled gamer likely behind October U.S. hacking. So so let me get this straight. Everything we thought, not true. Uh, that's uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So it turns uh, out a teenager upset at PlayStation Network went right. and rented a botnet. Right. So, so yeah, the story here is that 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 uh, the C this the CSO of Level Three Communications, a really large ISP here in the U.S., uh, I think in other countries too, uh, testified before Congress and uh, and, and basically said that uh, it is. It is strongly believed, based on their uh, their research, uh, that this was actually a, a targeted attack against a gaming network. And then uh, they, I think it was um, the Wall Street Journal, had done some other investigation and found that you know that gaming network was in fact the PlayStation Network. Mm-hmm. And uh, mm-hmm. so, so I have come to the conclusion that we in the cyberland need our own version of Hanlon's razor. <laughs> We, really? Yes, really? yes. We need we need a razor that says something to the effect of never ascribe to a nation state attacker that which can be adequately explained by an angry teenager at mm-hmm. a gaming network. What do you think? That's interesting. I think I think I think we're onto something here. Yeah. I yeah. think, uh, I mean, you and I have been on the forefront of sort of, hmm, what's the word I want to use, uh, ridiculing those claims of everything interesting being done by nation state. Yeah. I think yeah. our confirmation bias is once again confirmed by this story. Oh, absolutely. And that's why I, that's why it's here, right? Uh-huh. I mean, I, I would I would never include any disconfirming stories, so. Without, you know, just ridiculing it and pulling it apart. True. <laughs> it's true. That is true. So, uh, so yeah, anyway, the, uh, it, it's a it's an interesting turn of events. I'll, I will say, 
it's not, you know, it's kind of not like airtight because it does say in quotes likely this is a likely attack against the PlayStation Network. Um, but, you know, no, nothing about it, by the way, seemed particularly sophisticated, right? I mean, it was somebody attacking the DNS providers of of some service that was being hosted by Dyn. And it was just that it was such a large damn botnet with so much traffic. That was the unique thing. Indeed. And I would be very curious to see how they know this. You know, it doesn't go into the evidence behind it and why they think this, but so to be fair, we are, we are sort of jumping on this without knowing much about the background of how they and why they say this, but that's true. Like I said, fits our confirmation bias. That's true. Um, but you know, so, so a, this was a, this was a testimony given before Congress and, and B, they would have had, why in the world are they even, I don't know. I don't know that, um, but but B is Congress will fix it. Sorry, go no. On. Why? I'm I'm sure Congress, I'm sure Congress had a had a decided to go have a hearing about what happened, right? And that's that's kind of what they do, and and I'm sure Level Three was one of the the people they they asked to come in and testify, but you know they could just have easily said we don't know. It was you know it's on we we really don't know where it came from. But so I'm. I, it, it it seems odd if they don't if they don't have some you know some specific something specific that they would go and make such a claim in front of Congress. But hey, I mean, because right. by the way, it's sworn testimony, right? So is it? I Were believe they sworn? I believe it is sworn testimony. Not necessarily. You can, you you're not under oath all the time. You talk to Congress. I, th- I thought it was. So okay, maybe not. Well, one of us is correct. One of us isn't. That's true. Probably, I, I mean, I'm usually wrong, so, so that's my wife. <laughs> usually. <laughs> anyway. I, I want you to know that I was very nice right there, and I let all the jokes that came to mind go. Thank you. That's me for Thanksgiving, giving you a gift. Mm-hmm. Carry on. Moving on. So uh, our next story comes from the register, and the title here is Antivirus Tools Are a Useless Box-Ticking Exercise, says Google Security Chap. I, oh boy, I, mm, I have a lot of conflicting emotions on this story, but let's run through I, it. I just want to say that in the U.S., chaps mean something entirely different than what they do in England. <laughs> and somebody who works for Google should be able to look can that we, up. Can we please all get on the same page here? All right. Anyway, saying that our culture's version of the word "chap" is better than their culture's version of the word "chap." I'm not saying anything. I'm just saying that we need to get on the same page, whichever way that is. Mm. So, anyhow, um, so yeah. Let's see if we can fix metric versus imperial measurements first. How's that sound? Yeah, that that went that went so well back in what the (laughs) '80s. Yeah, that was great. Just saying. So, uh, so yeah. there's this uh, Google security engineer named Darren Bilby, and I believe he was at in the uh, Google Sydney office testif- or testifying. I got testi- testifying on the brain. He was uh, presenting at KiwiCon a couple weeks ago, and pointed out that you know we we need to stop. We as an industry need to stop relying on magical things like antivirus. And instead, focus on things that work, 
like whitelist. And, and also, we need to, um, you know, I, I think I would sum it up this way. He said the perimeter is dead. That was, that was another one of his points, was the perimeter is dead. We need to stop acting like there is a network perimeter. Uh, and then also stop relying on antivirus. So um, I, I, there was a great quote in here, which I thought was the whole reason I wanted to include this. It goes like this. I quote, antivirus does some useful things, but in reality, it is more like a canary in the coal mine. It is worse than that. It is like we are standing around the dead canary saying, thank God it inhaled all the poisonous gas. <laughs> so, yeah. Um I, you know, I, I, I definitely share the cynicism about antivirus uh, and, and think that application whitelisting is much more responsible way to go, you know, but it's, um, you know, I, I, I think in large measure, it's, it's really difficult for a lot of organizations to, to adopt. Now, I think Windows 10 is going to start maybe changing that for some organizations because it's kind of a native part of the operating system at, for, for at least for enterprises. Uh, however, it's still really unwieldy. Right. So a few thoughts. I think this guy is trying to be intentionally edgy. First off, I think this is a little bit of a clickbait approach to this. I think antivirus, whether we like it or not, still has a huge regulatory momentum behind it. And I think that we're not necessarily going to get away from antivirus anytime soon, at least for large environments. I think they do a good job of catching, um, you know, the crap out there, the, the, the drive-by stuff. And it's also good for cleaning up an environment, you know, after something happens. But I completely agree antivirus isn't good enough, and it's not enough. And I am a huge fan of whitelisting. I really like whitelisting. Um, but I think uh, I'm no fan of antivirus. I think that that it, but I do think it's a necessary evil still. And and I think that this goes a little too far in slamming antivirus because it does. You know, I see stats all day long that antivirus is stopping stuff that would have, you know, would have gotten through otherwise. Whitelisting, I think, is a is a very viable approach. But like you said, it is relatively load intensive it, to manage and run you shift a lot of responsibility to your help desk to deal with all sorts of stuff that users would have dealt with on their own but yeah but i do think whitelisting is is, is highly effective is a perfect no but i don't know i just think this guy kind of goes a little too far and and uh you know being edgy you know i it, it he's he's definitely i mean it's it was a KiwiCon, for those who who don't know, is a pretty pretty primo conference. I mean that that is it's I don't know exactly how many uh, how many attendees they have, but I mean they they do have a lot of groundbreaking talks there, and and so it's not surprising to see something you know being fairly intentionally controversial. Um, but you know th there is a point where you have to say, look, we, we're spending, I don't know, let's say 20 bucks per year for antivirus per workstation, right? And let's say in aggregate, I'm just completely making this up, right? In aggregate, 
uh, application waitlisting costs 30 bucks, fully loaded. So it's more expensive, right? At some point, you know, we, we have to we have to swallow hard and and stop doing what doesn't work. And I think that's the point here. But is it, is it that it's not working or is that it's not covering everything? Is it, is it helpful in one area, but we're, because we're seeing attacks that can bypass it, we then, you know, want to throw the baby out with the bathwater or is it <clears throat> an, one layer of many? Well, because I, think... I guess what I'm saying is, you know, you look at all these folks saying next gen AV and this sort of stuff. I don't know if they completely cover all the use cases that AV is used for for now. It's like they, they pick one area that AV falls down and they focus on that. Sure. But they don't cover everything else. That That's certainly true. Right. So I, I think it's really easy to pick on AV because we look at all the times you can get past it. But it's sort of a... I'm very conflicted on this issue because I know what you're saying. And I think one thing that he does say in here, which I, I do agree with is to a certain extent is, you know, telling users not to click on phishing links to download strange, not to download strange executables effectively shifts blame to them and away from those who manufacture hardware and software. They're not secure enough to be used online. Okay. To a certain extent, I agree with the first part of that, which is that we're, we're trying to get through this problem by user awareness training and that's continuing to fail. And I think that that is putting too much load on the average user to be that savvy all the time, right? Mm -hmm. We've talked about that ad, ad nauseum. I agree with that. However, to then say that hardware and software is not secure enough to be used online, that very quickly then starts to jump into the concept of, well, Microsoft and Apple, you know, those who aren't Google, uh, are incompetent in their approach to security, and they should be held accountable to that. Well, I, I would assume, I would assume that uh, Android, <laughs> right, is, is is also pretty culpable uh, there, there too. So, well, and I guess the fundamental challenge I have with that thought process is that the bad guys, when you have a sophisticated enough system, it's I would argue not impossible to make completely secure in a microcosm, in and of itself. If you wanted a completely secure version of Windows, sure, but it'll take 10 years to develop and cost a million dollars a copy. Our market hasn't demanded that. So what he's arguing against is he's arguing against what market forces have demanded, which is a regularly updated new features, featureful, aggressively uh, maintained and, and, and advanced state-of-the-art operating system. Mm -hmm. and, and, and he's whining because it's not secure enough. Well, the, the bottom line is the vast majority of people buying those operating systems don't care that much. Well, until until they get bit. Right. And then they care. Oh. <laughs> I just... Yeah, I know, it, I know what you're saying. I know what you're saying. I, I you know, I, I, I agree with a lot of what he, he says. I, I am not sure where he was going with that the second half of that quote you just read about, you know, shifting it away from shifting the responsible responsibility away from the hardware manufacturers and the software manufacturers. Um, you know, I, especially given the, the whole point was, um, you know, that we should be focusing on whitelisting. Maybe, maybe his point is that 
operating systems should should adopt more. <laughs> this is kind of ironic, right? But operating systems should, you know, unilaterally adopt the Apple App Store model, right? Maybe. Where, yeah, but a lot of people complained and whined when that happened. Well, I, no, no doubt. Because it doesn't give them enough freedom to run the code they want. Right. It, it's interesting. It depends on if you're looking at this from a consumer standpoint or an enterprise standpoint. And and they, they have different answers depending on that on those environments. And it's – but I like whitelisting, and I think you can manage whitelisting with the right tools and the right people. Um, but how do you manage whitelisting for consumers? You know, outside of outside of things like uh, you know, iOS's app store model, there really isn't a way, right? You know, and and maybe so in the, maybe in the future there will be. So you're centralizing one vendor's view of what's safe and what isn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, even even uh, even Windows 10, which has the the app locker built in. Is not available for uh, you know that it's not it's only available in the enterprise right. edition, and and even that is even even if it were it's probably more complex than any consumer is willing right. to uh, put into it. So, uh, I but I I think this discussion, my read is this this discussion is really enterprise centric, not. I guess. I guess I'm just bristling at the tone. I, I get tired of these elite hacksaws being all edgy just for the sake of being edgy. Like, come on, what does that really help? I guess I'm just old and cranky. Yeah, you are. <laughs> it's like it's like we were at O'Reilly, and one of the I'm not going to say who, but one of the one of the keynoters was so so edgy. I'm like, go put your hoodie on. Wow. So fundamentally, I agree. We need to move past AV, and we've said this. And but I think I don't think we can get away with just throwing AV out. And and let's keep in mind that AV is not static. We have all these AV manufacturers who also are responding to market forces. So the upside of AV is I've got it deployed on every one of my desktops already, typically. Right now, I've got an infrastructure that I can leverage. So how do I want to leverage it? Yeah. Yeah, that's um, you know I I guess there's another there's another angle too. I mean, so so I'm 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 maybe it's because I'm also old and cranky, but I'm getting to the point where I'm I'm growing intolerant of of certain things, and antivirus is one of those things I'm growing intolerant of. It's like we we spend a ton of money on it, and it it buys us marginal protection at best. And it and it's actually in some ways actively bad for us because you know I can't tell you how many times I've heard the words I don't know how I got infected my antivirus is up to date so it gives a false sense of security it gives a false sense of security absolutely now so, so is this kind of like how we add more safety features to cars so people drive faster well maybe I mean maybe so I I'm not I'm not that's not where I was not where I was yep. going. Um, I'm kind of where I'm going is if there's something that's more effective out there, like application whitelisting, maybe we should focus on doing that instead. Is so long as it, so long as it is a, you know, it does everything that your antivirus does and, and, and more, I know it's uncomfortable, right? 
and and it you know, probably won't go real well for a period of time. But, you know, let's stop doing the thing that doesn't work well and do something that works better. Now, I will say that like everything else, I have to believe that if there were a whole set, I mean, let's just, you know, let's let's pretend that Carbon Black's wet dream comes true, right? And and everybody stops renewing their Symantec enterprise agreements and starts going with uh, uh, Carbon Black Protect, right? Uh, just, it, I got to believe it's not going to be very long before people start figuring out ways to evade Carbon Black Protect, right? Certainly. That's, that's, now, it comes down to the quality of their code to make that difficult, but absolutely, once you reach a certain level of penetration as defensive technique, the bad guys will start looking at ways around it. Same thing has happened with almost every rise of every technique. Let's pick on FireEye for a moment. They really sort of pioneered the concept of sandbox execution and detonation of potential malware. So now, once they reached a certain impact and a certain penetration, the bad guys started writing code to, to evade that. Same damn thing's going to happen if you do widespread release of, of whitelisting. Now, the question is, given the concept of whitelisting, we've seen a few evasion techniques, but is it fundamentally that much more difficult? Because we're now dealing with a, uh, you know, a negative first approach as, as, a, as opposed to a positive first approach. So, right, AV is looking at let everything run, then try to find bad stuff and don't let it run. Whereas whitelisting is looking at don't let anything run except what I know to be and have said to be safe. So yeah. is that fundamentally going to be that much more difficult for the bad guys to get around? I don't know. I think you won't know until that really truly is tested uh, in the wild effectively for a long period of time. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's right. So moving on to our next story, which comes from, I don't even know what site this is. Insta2FA.com, whatever. Insta2FA.com. I really just sent you the story to make your head explode. Yeah, so the title is Never Spend More Than 37% The Golden Rule of Security Spending. Blah, blah, blah. So so there's this, there's this, this is a, a, a blog post from November 17th, and it refers to this Gordon Loeb model, and, and it describes it as awesome. The Gordon Loeb model that's referenced is was was published in a ACM, I think it was ACM uh, paper. Is it ACM or IEEE? I don't remember. Getting old and cranky. In two thousand two, okay. So it's, it's, which is about three eras ago in internet time. <laughs> yes, it was a while ago. Mm -hmm. uh, but mm -hmm. but they you know they the, the if when you go through the model right it's like um, so what you do is you figure out the likelihood of your data being compromised. You figure out the likelihood of, uh, you know, th or the, you figure out the potential loss of, of data being breached. And you figure out if you were to spend, uh, you know, X amount more in increments, how would that reduce the probability of a breach? And then it goes through some really, f you know, very nice math in that they kind of at the, at the end points out that you should not spend more than 37% of your, you know, of, of your potential loss. And that kind of makes sense. I mean, again, I, I kind of go back to the point that information security is not all that much different than insurance, right? And so you wouldn't buy an insurance policy that costs the same amount as your house, right? And so... 
So it's it's a little tautological, I guess. Well, here's my fundamental problem with this, is that not all spending is equal. And I could take two organizations and spend the exact same amount of money on security for CapEx and OpEx. And the decisions that are made and how they employ those tools and the quality of the people on board and their experience level and their cluefulness and the willingness of the culture to work with them and, and IT being supportive and executive management being supportive and the risk environment they're in and how they do business, all of this factors in, all of it. Yeah. And I can have two companies with the exact same spend, one being breached all day long and the other one tight as a drum on security. Right. It's not that simple. There are far more variables at play. Yeah. So, so that's I think it's a it it is at some level an interesting exercise to think about. But at the end of the day, the it, it's always been the inputs that were the problem, right? right? How do we how do you how do you quantify the likelihood of of a breach? How do you how do you fully value the the loss to your organization if some data were breached? And how do you measure the or forecast really, not even measure, how do you forecast the resulting decline in uh, you know in, in vulnerability based on spending? And and so so I, you know if it's like if you can solve those I'm not sure this model is going to be all that helpful to you because right. you know you've you you are uh, much ahead of of the world. Now there was one thing that I thought that was pretty, well. I guess two things. One is it's important to know that you shouldn't be spending as much on your security program is the potential loss of your data. Right? I mean, it, hopefully that's obvious. Can we quantify the cost of loss though? Really? Uh, I mean, especially the intrinsic issues like. Reputation cost and M&A activity. I mean, there's. this is where I start to really get into a bind is trying to quantify the cost of a loss. Well, but I think at some level, you you have to do that in order to figure out if you are spending too much on your program, right? I yeah. mean, you know, that that's... That that is the job of of a security executive and and C, you know CSO or CISO that that's their that's their job you know are we are we how how is our spending relative to the potential downside? Gotcha. So I mean that's that's a that's a and it's there's no science there unfortunately it's like kind of thumb in the air, <laughs> and uh, sometimes they get it right and sometimes they don't. Um, you know, there was there was one other uh, interesting thing I, I thought in here, which was they point out that it's not necessarily the th- that the spending priorities shouldn't necessarily be focused on the things that are most vulnerable, but rather on the things that are most valuable. Which, you know, again, but we're, we're the problem. With this is we're looking at things in a microcosm. Yes, you know, again, we're taking every discrete issue and and this is a whole system that's interconnected that and and that is my problem right when we when we think about things like what happened in opm and target and home depot and on and on and on right you know when you when you 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 can't think about like target can't think about the potential loss of their vendor management portal 
right? Yep. B- because, you know, if they think about it that way, well, they're like, oh, well, you know, the lot, the, 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 the total conceivable loss of our vendor management portal is, you know, I don't know, so half a million bucks because we it would be down, we'd have to rebuild it, we'd have to restore it from tape and blah, 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 you know. Maybe we piss off some vendors, and and like you said, it doesn't it doesn't account for the interconnectedness, and that's the that's the real problem is feeding this this kind of a model with with anything that's not garbage is really difficult. Yep. So but anyway, I think, I think these attempts are going to keep continuing. Right? People are always looking for the magic magic number. Yeah, it's interesting though that this uh, this. This model has come up like a, it just keeps showing up like a bad penny. And um, it's, again, it's an interesting model, but like this isn't the hard, the, the, the thing that the model addresses is not the hard part. It's right. It's the things that are, are, are forward of that, that is the hard part. So uh, anyway, I digress. So moving on to our, our last, uh, it's actually a pair of stories. And uh, and I wanted I I wanted to uh, to bring this up because you know we are often pretty critical of how things are reported and you know the the, the interplay of vendors and I, I'll also say the uh, the election cycle this year in the U.S. and I'm not going to go do much political discussions here but there's been a lot of discussion about you know the 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 impact of how things are reported in the media has a lot to do with, with people's perceptions. And, and here's a pair of uh, security stories, which I thought was really interesting. And so this, both of these stories are based on a report, the same report uh, related to ransomware. And I'm going to read both titles one after the other to give you a, a sense of where I'm going with this. So the first one comes from securityweek.com and the title is when ransomware hits business when ransomware hits business paying up unlikely to guarantee resolution. So that's that's story number 1. Story number 2 comes from CSO online and the title is ransomware victims able to thwart attacks report says. <laughs> so same report, same report, somewhat different takeaways from that report. Very different. Yeah, so the 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 security week report says, um, you know, uh, let's see, eighty six percent of companies that paid the the ransom were uh, the extortionists attempted to get, extract a second, and eighty one percent said uh, that they were attempted to get a a third, and they they go on to say down at the bottom of the article. In 57% of the cases, the extortionists didn't actually decrypt the files, <laughs> even after they did pay. And that in 43% of the cases, the data was released after the ransom was paid, and in, um, and in 43% of the cases, the attacker decrypted the files and left. So, you know, and that stands in stark contrast to this other, st- because you would, if you read that, you're like, holy crap. Like, this is, you know, this is bad. This is bad. And so I think the takeaway here is go read the source material. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then you go over to the other story, and it's, you know, twenty in in twenty seven percent of cases. This is from the CSO online. In twenty seven percent of cases, the attacker couldn't decrypt or couldn't encrypt any files. 
Right. In 45 of the attacks, some files are encrypted, but the companies were able to decrypt them on their own. In 25% of the cases, the company was able to replace encrypted files from backups. Only in 3% of the cases were the companies unable to restore the encrypted files. <laughs> so, you know, how do you reconcile the the narratives between these two these two stories i don't i don't really get it and what's interesting though is is um you would think that because the second story from cso online has some quotes in here about uh, from uh, sentinel one right and you would think that like that would be the one that you would want to be do- kind of doom and gloom <laughs> right because right. you know buy our product. you got buy our product everybody's getting hosed buy our product mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so um so th- I guess the, the, the point is that we've talked about this in the past, right? A lot of the security stuff that we learn about, you know, the, 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 the reports and the intellectual capital comes from vendors or vendor-funded research. Right. Right? And then if that's not enough, it goes through a filter, Yep. which, you know, which is the, the, the reporting. And so we have to be... Um, yeah. By the way, I don't even know what to think about this stupid report. <laughs> you just want to point out the duality of the takeaways. Yeah. From these. Two I don't even know what. The, I mean, ransomware bad, fine, right? But right. yeah, that it's it was the duality that I wanted to point out that you yeah. know we have to be as as security people, we have to be aware that what we're reading here is we we, we have to be critical thinkers about this stuff. It's true. It's absolutely true. So. And you know it's tough enough with everything else we got going on. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Got day jobs and podcasts. And night jobs and weekend jobs. And That's true. Middle of the night jobs. And your mom. That's true. She is a job, let me tell you. <laughs> uh, anyway, so so yeah, that was uh that was what I wanted to say about those. I don't know if you had anything oh. else. No, I think you hit all the key points. Uh, you know, it's I, I go back to you gotta you gotta be careful about what how do I want to say this without unintentionally pissing somebody off? I don't mind intentionally pissing them off. I don't want to unintentionally. There's typically a point of view that a certain writer or organization has when they're writing about something. And it's very good to often ask yourself, what is the frame of reference that this particular writer or whatnot is coming from? Yeah, And, you know, it's really hard, I think, in our industry to get completely non-biased information. I think it's really hard. Even us, you know, in our day jobs, we're not running six different versions, six different vendors to do the same thing and comparing and contrasting. We're just seeing what happens with the, with the product we have in our environment, good, bad, or indifferent. So yeah. it's really tough to, to know, you know, somebody asks me, hey, what's your favorite antivirus? Well, I, you know, I know one really well. <laughs> right. right? Right. So... How can I, I can tell you, and, and, and the problem with that is that if I've got an incumbent, I have much higher likelihood of having some sort of negative experience with something I'm running because nothing is perfect than a marketing view of a demo of a product I've never run. So it, we, the incumbent typically, unless they are flawless, is typically at a loss to compete against a perfect marketing message from a competitor. Yeah. Yep. So 
I take a lot of marketing with a huge grain of salt. Huge grain of salt. In fact, most marketing, I go blah, 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 whatever. Because I've seen, I've seen too many times, I've seen terrible products marketed well. You know? And, and they sell as a result. Mm-hmm. They suck once they're in place, but they sell. And that's what makes the sales guys and the market people happy. I don't know. That's a whole different rant. But well, I mean, then it, it's, it'll get fixed in the next version. So I don't know what you're you worried know, about. <laughs> and that's so true. Right? Well, we just establish a relationship with the customer, and then we'll continue to improve based on their feedback. That's exactly how some companies think. <laughs> uh, anyway, it's late on a Sunday. I should just shut up. <sighs> All right. So um, I think that's uh, that's all we have, yeah. 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 So um, so yeah, thank you all for listening, and uh, again, a special thank you to our Patreon donors. Also, if you are not one of the the cool kids, you should join our Slack channel. Is uh, there an easy way to find the Slack channel? How uh, do you recommend people find the Slack channel? Well, I, I'll embed it in the show notes. And one and then I'm, I'm I gotta find a better way to uh, put it on the website. I just I haven't had haven't had uh, time to do that. If you Google defensive security Slack, it's the first hit. Well, hey, there you go. Yeah, mm-hmm. the Googles. That'll, yeah, that'll get you there. It's true. And uh, so yeah, any any I don't know of any cons coming up where we're gonna be at. No. No. Well, we're coming into the holidays too, so it gets a little a little crazier. Yeah, I don't think I'm going to make it to ShmooCon this year. Oh, really? Next year, yeah. Oh, well, that's unfortunate. Maybe I'll go and you won't. Yeah. Maybe we'll never be in the same con again at the same time. Could be. Because <laughs> you were at B-Sides Atlanta and I wasn't. Now I'll be probably, hopefully, at ShmooCon and you won't. Not mm-hmm. hopefully you won't, but hopefully I'll be there. I don't know. We'll see. I, I don't have a ticket right now, so. Hint, hint. But what about, what about DerbyCon? Oh, absolutely. I'll be at DerbyCon. That's... Well, I guess I can't go then. <laughs> we can we can no longer be at the same place. Yes, great. <laughs> well, I mean, with the size of your ego, I mean, can you blame me? That's true. <laughs> uh, but yes, huge shout out to our Patreon donors. You guys are amazing, and thank you to all of our regular listeners and continued fans. Uh, we love you guys. And hey, if you like the show, throw us a uh, a review on iTunes. It's uh, it's internet points for us. If you don't like the show, send us an email and tell us why. Yeah, that's exactly right. And then uh, just I, you know, I we did um, we did promise uh, a, a friend of ours that we would give a shout out to Hack in the Box Amsterdam. Oh, you're right. Yes, yes. Which um, Hack in the Box Amsterdam, which we need to go to one of these days. Yes, yes. I, I still need to. I'm still trying to figure out if I can swing it. It is um, April 10th through 14th, 2017. I, I got. I'm not sure. You know, what what it, with the time zone, I don't know what what you know what those dates work out to. But um, uh, June or something. Yeah, something like that. After you do the metric conversion and everything, I I just don't know. So so anyway, so, uh, yeah. Call for papers. Call for papers is open until the end of the year. That's right. And also early bid pricing in effect. Yes. Uh, Conference.hitb.org. Yes. Be there or be square. And we're happy, by the way, to shout out other conferences. If you have a conference you want us to mention, let us know. Yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we have more than a more than a few listeners. So, mm-hmm. public service. Think of it that way. Anyway, 
uh, you can find links to the uh, to the stories we talked about, and I know there were a bunch today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. Um, you can Google uh, Defensive Security Slack and uh, join our super cool Slack channel. Hope to see you there. Um, you can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kellett on Twitter at Lurg. That's L-E-R-G. I've seen people like trying to find to follow L-I-R-G. That was kind of weird. Um, oh, hopefully that person is cool and interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can follow me on uh, Twitter at MaliciousLink, and I am, as you pointed out, I'm there way too much. <laughs> it's like a, I, I need a 12-step... There needs to be like one of those, uh, you know, recovery programs in the woods where, I, where I'm going to have to go and take care of my Twitter problem. But uh, anyway, until then, you can find me on Twitter. Uh, and uh, with that, we will talk again next week. Thank you very much. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. See you later. Bye-bye. Clearly, we need to go out to Redmond and <clears throat> kick some ass. Well, you know, if we could get a sound drivers working on Linux, we could just do that. No one's ever gotten sound drivers to work on Linux. Come on.